Mike Global IQ is 109. 100. 145. 122. 108. 132. 118. 137. 103. And as listeners know, I am always pleased to welcome guests from my alma mater, the University of Virginia, where Philip holds two professorships, one in the Department of History and the other at the Miller Center for Public Policy. Great to have you in Dallas. It's great to be here, Jim. Thank you. And this is your home state. This is very much my home state. I grew up in Texas and uh, always uh, glad to get back. So tell us about how you and Dr. Rice decided to write this book and also how did you collaborate? Well, we decided to write it because we sensed that the world was drifting towards another large global crisis in which all the uh, arrangements that were put in place at the beginning of the 1990s were coming back on the table. And we thought it was a very good time to go back and help people understand how and why this current world was built the way it was how people designed all these institutions and why they designed them, how we got through the last great global crisis, which climaxed toward the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s, and in which uh, Condi and I had participated as young policymakers, as she puts it, as baby policymakers. Both worked together in the White House for the elder President Bush, both in our mid-30s. I was then a career diplomat. Uh, she was a young professor from Stanford. Uh, and we began working together at the beginning of 1989, long before she was a celebrity and, and I had a fancy professorship. So one of the things I found so interesting in reading your book is that you didn't write it from just the perspective of the United States. And so were you able to access materials that have recently been declassified or that were in other languages? Or? We were. Another big reason we wanted to write the book is the time was right to do it. We thought you couldn't really tell the story of how the world got through this last period and built all these institutions if you didn't tell it from a world history perspective, an international perspective, because none of these things got done by one country alone. And not only are a lot of American materials now available, but so are materials in German, Russian, French, or from the British archives. And she reads Russian, I read German. Uh, a lot of that material is now available and actually is a revelation to us. We learned a lot of things that actually we hadn't known at the time. Were you able to do some interviews that were really unique? We have. Um, actually, we had worked a little bit on a piece of these issues before in a book we co-wrote on German unification more than 25 years ago. And for that, actually, we had interviewed uh, a lot of the lead policymakers, many of whom we knew, and, and while their memories were still fresh. There were a few details here and there when we unearthed things in the archives where I would go back to people and say, what was going on with this document? Because I didn't, there were some really interesting things we learned even as we revisited these issues now uh, uh, decades later. And we're actually a little older and wiser than we were back then. And our judgments about some of these episodes have evolved over the years because we bring the story forward to the present day and kind of show how the system evolved since the early 1990s. And offer some comments on where we think we need to go next. When you talk about the system, isn't it a system right now that is perhaps showing its age and is perhaps fraying? It sure is. But look, what we had then is you had a, 
a group of leaders who were shadowed by the experiences of war in the post-war world, who tried to build a better world at the end of the 80s and the early 90s, and they succeeded. But the, and, and they built a lot of institutions and partnerships that worked very well for a time. But as usually happens in history, new forces emerged. You know, there were design issues even in the original institutions. And as time passed, you drifted, the old institutions were extended and then extended some more and then no longer were really adapted very well for the new problems. And let me interject to say, when we're talking institutions, we're talking about the United Nations, NATO, the IMF. The IMF, um, the North American Free Trade Agreement, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Agreement, the World Trade Organization, all these things that help manage the global economy. Take, for example, the global financial crisis. So we, a system was created that made it much easier for goods and services and people and money to flow across borders, and that helped enrich a lot of people. But it also led, over time, to periodic serious financial crises. And we did not, neither we nor the Europeans, really built the institutions to effectively cope with those crises. And one of them hit us really hard uh, between 2008 and 2012, both the United States and Europe. And actually, the danger is there that we might get hit by another. One of the things that surprised me, I had no idea about this, that when President Ronald Reagan famously said in Berlin, standing at the Brandenburg Gate, tear down this wall, open the gate, he regretted those words. He did. Uh, a little more than a year later, meeting secretly with the Soviet foreign minister, the, whose name was Edward Shevardnadze, uh, Reagan told Shevardnadze, this was in September 1988, that he regretted having given that speech about tearing down the wall and that he now understood Soviet concerns about a united Germany better than he had back then. Shevardnadze did not let him off the hook. He pounded him a little bit about it. Uh, it just as a way of showing that neither Reagan nor anyone else really foresaw how this was all going to develop in the five years between 1988 and the end of 92. Everyone was improvising, but they improvised with a set of principles in view they uh, made some rapid adjustments, and the Americans and West Germans and others forged remarkable partnerships that then created these new designs for a new European Union, a new NATO, a new Germany, uh, to replace the communist world with a whole different world, with a different kind of world economy, um, that cr built the better world that they had hoped for and built it amazingly without an apocalyptic war on we affected changes that at every other time changes on this scale have occurred in world history. There were cataclysmic wars, but not this time. And we thought people uh, might be interested in hearing that story and trying to understand how and why that happened. I want to talk about some of the relationships that President Bush had with other world leaders. But first, I always think of the Bush administration as really moving in lockstep. And then he had such a strong foreign policy team, Brent Scowcroft as his national security advisor, Jim Baker, his close friend as Secretary of State. And you and Dr. Rice note that there really was at times quite a bit of disagreement among all of these players. There was. There was a fair amount of tension, especially early on. But a couple of things are really stand, really stand out. First, really there was almost never any daylight between George Bush and Jim Baker. 
this was the closest combination of any president and his secretary of state since Thomas Jefferson and James Madison held those offices. That was an astonishing combination. And by the way, they have very different strengths and weaknesses. Actually, Baker has a humorous way of putting it. He kind of says, uh, well, uh, I was good at ground, when, when they played club tennis together as partners, which they did. Uh, they won. You can go to the Houston they, Country Club and yes, see their names still. Memorial Country Club. Um, and Baker would say, I was good at ground strokes. Uh, Bush was good at the net. Uh, neither of us was any good at serving. <laughs> and, uh, but it kind of captures a sense of a tandem partnership. That, and they knew each other so well that one of their cabinet members remarks that it seemed like it's, that they could communicate telepathically. Scowcroft, at first, was a little bit of an outlier in this group, but after some months, he fit in well, too, and also played a unique function for Bush in helping to manage the interagency process fairly and with insight. And over time, this paid off. Now, when they had disagreements, Bush made some tough decisions. There was one we recount in the spring of 1989 where he sharply overruled both Dick Cheney and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but it didn't leak. Everybody, they saluted, the president had made his decision, the team stayed together, and they functioned as a team and they respected each other as a team and it worked. Another relationship that surprised me that was not as strong as I had assumed is the one between George H.W. Bush and Margaret Thatcher. As you write, Bush and the administration really felt more comfortable with the German chancellor. He felt more comfortable with the German chancellor. Frankly, he felt more comfortable with the French president, Francois Mitterrand, than he did with Thatcher. Thatcher had a tendency to lecture. Bush would tend to listen to the lectures, but she knew very well he wasn't necessarily doing what she wanted. You know, it, it's, a, it's interesting to notice that a lot of people characterize Bush as a, quote, conservative. But actually, during these years, the real conservative, the person resistant to change, was Thatcher. And Bush and Cole and Mitterrand actually were moving for radical change. Thatcher was against German unification. Thatcher was uh, in favor of keeping a divided Europe, including a Warsaw Pact. Uh, she was in pretty significant sympathy with Gorbachev in late, in late 1989. Um, Bush and Cole and Mitterrand were the ones in favor of radical change. They also wanted to re reinvent the European community into a European Union. Again, Thatcher was against that too. So Thatcher was, in, in fact, really the, the conservative who wanted to keep the world the way it was in the 80s, that divided world, the stable world she felt she knew and understood. And Bush and Cole and Mitterrand, in their different ways, with different goals, were envisioning far more radical shifts in the shape of Europe and eventually the shape of the world. Yet meantime, on some other issues, they cooperated well. But here's another example. When it came to reversing Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and uniting the world in a way it had never been united before to reverse aggression, setting a precedent for the world working together to take care of a global outlaw, which was another huge change. Bush and Thatcher agreed that the invasion needed to be reversed. They disagreed about the means. Bush said, let's do this together in the United Nations and build a global coalition in which the world unites to do this. Thatcher was worried that we couldn't get the world together to do it. Bush and Baker said, uh, we think we'd like to try. And they did.
In your book, in the last chapter, you and Dr. Rice address our relations with Russia and China. We don't have time for China, but let's talk about Russia, which seems so tense and is a, a country in decline, but is quite mischievous right now. Yes, actually, Condi uh, remembers meeting Vladimir Putin all the way back in 1992 when he was an aide to the St. Petersburg mayor. And Jim, as you know, in the introduction to the book, we have our own way of introducing Vladimir Putin and Angela Merkel uh, by, in a way... It's a uh, delightful way to do it. And we're not yes. going to tell people, we'll tease you, but it really is a, a fun way to read. And of course, you immediately realize who you're talking about, but you're, I was especially surprised about Merkel. Yep. And then then we bring it all the way forward. Here's Putin today. And actually, Condi, uh, I think, and I, but I rarely rely on Condi here, really recounts how, at first, um, despite all the disagreements in the 1990s, Putin was ready to do business as usual with us. And actually, the United States and Russia were getting along well at, right after 9-11, cooperating against terrorism. In our book, we actually placed the, the decisive break with Russia in the middle of the 2000s. And we think this had a lot to do with the United States increasingly emphasizing a freedom agenda um, and supporting democratic change, say, in a place like Ukraine. And Putin, remembering his own memories of 1989, worried that democracy in Ukraine was going to feed another wave of revolutions that would come right back to Russia. Putin decided to uh, tear the, the, uh, tear up a lot of the agreements and understandings of the old days, break decisively with the United States, blame us for uh, destabilizing the world order, and attempt to unite the world around anti-liberal agendas. Whether that meant making common cause with the Chinese or with the Iranians or others, and uh, has played um, a negative and mischievous role now since the middle of the 2000s. Um, he needs this enemy in part as a way of uniting and sustaining his position in Russia, a position that's growing increasingly tenuous as a lot of Russians wonder how all this mean how all this creates a better future for their children in Russia. But there we are with the Russians right now. I will say this, though, is Condi and I don't really try to call this a new Cold War or call for a Cold War 2.0, either with Russia or with China. We take a more matter-of-fact view that kind of breaks things down with China and Russia into the issues that we've got and doesn't try to say this is all like Soviet communism all over again. This is a new kind of problem. The 21st century has new kinds of issues. Instead of trying to turn the clock back to the way we did things 30 years ago, the argument of this book is here's lessons on how you adapt institutions for the challenges of a new generation. All right. Now, this generation has yet a different set of challenges, and these institutions need to be adapted again to meet the 21st century problems. Well, I want to congratulate you and Dr. Rice for your book, To Build a Better World. It is one that certainly gives an incredible amount of background. Clearly, you put so much thought into it, and it deserves to be read by all of our listeners. 
Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jim. And thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And special thanks to my producers, Kara Schechtman and Kayla Smith, and also to our intern, Alfie Joseph. And with that, as always, I ask you, what is your Global IQ?